Good morning. Hey, so I was uh, in, uh, I haven't been here in, in three weeks, two weeks I was gone, this is the third week, so uh, it's really good to be back. Two weeks ago I was in St. Louis uh, preaching at the Journey Church, and that was uh, a lot of fun, a church that, that I've been following for a long time, Pastor Darren Patrick, uh, who's been a mentor and a friend for a while, asked me to come speak out there, and it was really great. The only bad part was, I got up there and I said, hey, good morning, and they were like, good morning, we love you, you're great, and it was like, man, my own church uh, doesn't even love me as much as these people who have never met me before and don't know if I'm great, but they love me anyway. <clears throat> so that's all. Hey, a uh, <clears throat> couple things. I, I got an announcement to make uh, this morning that's very exciting. We, uh, I, I kind of put it out there on Twitter, Facebook, that we had an announcement to make, and uh, so like 10 of you know that, and, uh, and, and, but, but it's, really, it's really good. And we've had a lot of people going, oh my gosh, more announcements, I can't, I can't take it anymore, and whatever. And I realized, I was thinking, that's really weird, it doesn't seem like we've been making that many announcements. And I realized, it's only been like four or five months since we announced that we were merging our church and changing our name, and then like one month since we announced we were merging with another church. And it's like, uh, we are not going to merge with another church, I promise you that. For the next several days, we will not merge. <laughs> with any other churches, okay? Uh, the name's going to stay the same. Um, I, I want to I tell you this announcement, but I want to do what my wife hates, which is I want to tell you something cool, but I'm going to take five minutes to get there, okay? And so my wife hates it, which is great because she's over there. So um, six years ago, uh, we started Praxis Church, and, and it started uh, with uh, myself and a couple other people moving to Tempe from, uh, from San Diego. And so uh, it's, it was kind of a big deal to leave San Diego, which is this phenomenal place to live. I had a great job, great gig there, and loved it. Um, moving out to the desert um, and, uh, and, and, and planting a church. And so uh, we started six years ago. It was really hard. I've told this story a million times. There were 10 people in my parents' living room. I was related to half of them. And it was, it was an inauspicious start, to say the least. And, and I remember going, we're going to change the city, and we're going to do this, we're going to do that. We're going to do this. And, and I, I just know they were like, hey, why don't we get somebody who you're not related to first before we change the world? So uh, it, it, was, it, it was a slow start. It took us about two years uh, to get to 75 people, which seemed just painfully slow. It's actually a pretty normal church plant development, but uh, at times seemed painfully slow. And so it took us two years to get to 75 people. And then, and then many of you have kind of come in the last four years. It took us uh, another four years to go from 75 people to about 1,200 people. And so um, and then it took us one day to get to 5,000. That was a good day. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, over the course of the six years of Praxis, right, if you guys remember Praxis, um, over the course of those six years, we were in 13 different locations in 13 years, just bouncing around to different places, sometimes getting kicked out because our building was getting sold to the Jewish people, sometimes um, not liking a building and leaving and then having that building bought by uh, the Hindu people, which is just, it's a weird legacy we're leaving behind here. But, um, but we've bounced around, we've been in different locations, we've been renting, and then we, we, we found ourselves here um, uh, about, about a year and a half ago. And it was somewhat uh, by, by luck of the draw or, or by, we kind of gave up and said, okay, we'll move here. Because this was not where we wanted to be. This was not the ideal location at all. Um, but we, we've just been renting places and God's been always providing for us. And um, we originally were in the Maple Ash 
neighborhood, um, which is just south of University, just west of Mill Avenue, which is this great little neighborhood, probably my favorite neighborhood in Tempe. And a great little neighborhood. We had a church in there. The room sat about uh, like not even that section of people. It was this really small room, but it was where we started. I would love to know how many of you went to church at the at the the first Praxis location, the the ninth and ninth and or tenth and Ash. Wow, that's way more of you than I would have thought. Nice work, people. Uh, so we we had we had some people there. We were there for about a year or two. Loved it. It was it was kind of our humble beginnings. We moved to another place um, on Beck. Uh, just north of university after we were in Maple Ash, we went to Beck University. So how many of you guys were at the Beck place? Okay, a lot more of you. Good. Okay. So that was, that was cross point two. All right. So um, Maple Ash was cross point one. Uh, Beck was cross point two. And then we went to cross point three, which was uh, just down the street here on uh, rural and, and southern. And we moved our evening services to cross point three. How many of you guys were in cross point three? Good. Less than cross point two. That doesn't make sense, but okay. Um, so then we moved evening services cross point three. We lost our morning services, so we went to the theater for an ill-fated five months. That was terrible. Um, and then uh, we we got this opportunity that kind of came out of the blue um, to to start a campus in Arcadia, and we had no interest in Arcadia. And it's a really really great story because I was at I was at school at Phoenix Seminary, which is right across the street from the Phoenix uh, from the Arcadia campus. And they had a sign that said rental space available. And I knew we were losing our morning space in Tempe. And so I called him. And the guy says, well, we got this classroom space. And we're trying to rent out this classroom space. And I said, well, I don't care about your classroom space. Talk to me about your sanctuary. And he goes, oh, well, we, you know, we have a church. And, and so I'm like, eh, whatever. So let me, let me come see your sanctuary. And so um, I, I went over. And it was me and the pastor and an elder and, and then this deacon guy that I had talked to on the phone. And we're, they gave me a tour of the facility. They're like, yeah, we're really excited about this classroom space. The main sanctuary sanctuary space, didn't have air conditioning at the time. The children's ministry is downstairs. If you've never been to Arcadia, you walk in and you have to go into the cavern to drop your kids off. It's a little weird. Um, Dodging stalactites. And then... uh, uh, and then, and then the, there was no, no uh, air conditioning in it. And at the front, the fr- front couple rows, um, there was, a, there was a, a set for a handbell choir. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, this is us. And... Um, <laughs> And so we were talking, and they showed me the whole deal, and I said, I said, well, what would you think if I, uh, what would you think if, if we came in here, Praxis came in here, and we became the primary users of the facility, you guys became the secondary users of the facility, moved into the fellowship hall, and did church out of there. We took all the storage, all the junk that you have downstairs, we make that children's ministry space, we move that into the classroom space you've been wanting to rent out, make that storage, and we kind of become the primary users of the facility. And there was kind of this awkward pause, like I just said, can I have your firstborn son? And so uh, there was just this weird pause, and, and then they went, okay, that sounds good. And I was like, change my pants. And then, and then we, we, kept, we went on with the meeting, and I'm like, wow, that just happened. And so I remember kind of going to the elders and going, uh, I think we have an Arcadia campus now. And they're like, what's Arcadia? And, and so that, that kind of happened on accident. And we started the first core group meeting. It was like 60 people in the basement, still no AC. It was hot. Three people died. And, and, um, and, then, uh, and then it's grown. And, and it's gone from, in about two years, gone from 60 to about 400. And it's, fa- it's grown faster than Tempe has. It's been just ridiculous. So um, that, that's been really cool. So 
One part of, one part of the announcement is um, we've been given an opportunity to potentially purchase the Arcadia campus. And so um, the offer, the first offer we gave them, they rejected immediately because it was, hey, why don't you give us the Arcadia campus? And they said, no. And so uh, then we made them a second offer that they didn't immediately reject, which is a win. And it is a very, what I think is a very fair offer, but one that is also beneficial for us. It would essentially not change our expenses in Arcadia at all. We would give a little bit of money up, up front out of savings, um, and then they would carry the note, and, and our mortgage would be almost identical to what we're paying in rent right now. So that would be a phenomenal opportunity. So part of the announcement number one is, please be praying for that, that the, that the presbytery that makes that final decision um, would decide, yes, we want to do that. We want to um, take a, a, a very close-to-market price offer, um, and, uh, but then uh, also bless, bless us, bless redemption by letting us use the campus. So be praying for that. Secondly, um, we found ourselves here after the, the folks at Cross Point 3 were kind of done with us and, uh, and our morning situation in Beck and we were after, after uh, Cross Point 2, we were just had morning services in Arcadia, no morning services in Tempe. That was a problem. I knew that the church here was leaving and so I just drove over here one day, knocked on an office door and said, who are you selling this thing to? And they gave me the name, and I knocked on their door and said, hi, I'm, I'm Justin, and I want to use your sanctuary. And um, they, they were a, they're a charter school, and they said, great, that sounds fun. So um, we've been here now for about 18 months. And, and I'll say a couple things about this place. If you remember what this place looked like when we got here, it was Smurf Town, and, uh, and, and, and the, the, there was blue pews, blue carpet, blue stage, stage set up to be like on TBN, which we considered, and it was like huge choir area over here, and a giant, it was just crazy, giant pulpit for pounding and stuff, and so um, we, we've done quite a bit of work here on, on a uh, pretty, with pretty reasonable price, actually. We, we remodeled this whole thing for, I think, less than $70,000. And so we did a really good job. Rick obviously did most of the work, and, and he does all our work, and, and they did phenomenal. So um, the problem with this place has been a couple things. One is it's on the 101 in Southern, which is great for those of you coming from the East Valley or from Scottsdale um, who have really quick, easy access to this building. It's not great um, for us to reach our goal, which is to reach Tempe. Okay, we, we, we came here, I moved here from San Diego for Tempe, and I love Tempe, I want to be in Tempe, I care about Tempe, I live in Tempe, I plan to always live in Tempe, and I want to reach Tempe and transform Tempe, and that's always been, I mean, from the early, early days, we had said, I, I want Tempe to be a place, as a result of our work here and, and the gospel through us, um, to be a place where people who haven't been here for a while will come back and go, you know what, there's something different about Tempe, it's a better place now, and I don't know why, and, and, and reason is because God's, God's been working here, and so I love Tempe. I want to be in Tempe. Um, along the way, there have been opportunities and, and options for us to do different things. And over and over and over, I've said, I want to be in Tempe. I love Tempe. I care about Tempe. Um, so this building is not a great place to be in Tempe. And especially now that we have a Gilbert campus and a Queen Creek campus, um, it's not a huge, huge priority for us anymore to have easy access to the East Valley. And so for those of you who come from the East Valley, it doesn't mean I love you less. It just means I care about you less. Okay. And so... Um, <laughs> So we, we really, if you're new, it's a joke, okay? I'm sorry. I'm not as much of a jerk as it seems. Um, <clears throat> we care about Tempe. We are the Tempe campus. We want to reach Tempe. And so um, about two years ago, um, I was walking around. I love walking. I was walking around downtown and, and, and saw this building really close to downtown. And I thought, that's a 
great building. What is that? And so I called this broker that has been helping us with all our projects. And I said, this thing's not for sale, but can you find out with something about this building? And so we called the owner and the owner's like, yeah, I don't want to sell, but it's mine and I'm doing this with it. It's like, okay. Well, about four months ago, that building came on the market. And so I called our broker and said, God, dude, this, it, uh, and it sounded like that. And he goes, oh, the building's on the market? And I said, yeah. So he, he called the owner and goes, okay, what's the deal? Remember me? We called a long time ago. This, this, you know, I, Justin saw that there's a sign out in front. And what, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm, I'm selling the building. And I'm, I'm open to it. He goes, I'd prefer to lease, but, but I'm open to selling the building. And so um, he you know, told us what the lease price was and the purchase price. And, and honestly, it makes more sense to purchase it than lease it at the price he wants, especially with the amount of work that would have to go into it. Long story short, we have an opportunity here. Um, to, to be in 85281, to be within uh, a, a seven iron of downtown mill, um, to, to be right where we want to be, to do the kind of ministry we want to do. It is an unbelievable opportunity, um, an, an incredible building. I mean, literally, and, and this is not, uh, not, not me trying to sell it, because once you see it, you'll agree with me. If every building in Tempe were on sale for the same price, this is the one I would want for our church and for what we want to do. And providentially, I, I had a meeting with, with a guy who is um, a chaplain to the um, Arizona uh, House of Representatives or Senate, Congress, whatever that is, and uh, uh, works extensively with the city of Tempe in particular and Mayor Hugh Hallman, who's a believer here in Tempe. And um, he was talking to me about being involved in this project that they called the 85281 project. 85281 is the zip code there, that, that central downtown Mill Avenue. It's, it's the zip code um, in Tempe where, where all of that is going on. And he said, we've got this project that the 85281 zip code is, has the second highest poverty rate of any zip code in Maricopa County. And he said, uh, the, the co-chair of this project is the mayor um, who wants to transform the A5281. And he goes, we, we've got the government on board, we've got civic, we've got business, we've got nonprofit. He goes, the only thing we don't have is an anchor church um, that can really be the church for this 85281 um, community for this 85281 transformation project. We don't have a church. And he came to me and said, I know you guys used to be in 85281, but you're not now. What's your plan? Do you guys want to be back in 85281? I said, I would give anything to be back in 85281. I said, to be honest with you, we're pursuing, we're looking at a building in 85281. He goes, man, tell me what I can do. Tell me what the mayor can do. We want to be involved. We want this. So um, here's, here's what I need, need from you. Pray, 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 pray. Um, we are going to make an offer on the building on Monday. Okay, so we've been looking through it. We've been talking to the banks. We've been working on this quite a bit, talking with the owner. A lot of this still hinges on the owner's willingness to sell. It's kind of close to his heart, and he's not really sure if he wants to sell yet. And I'm probably telling you more information at this point. At this point, oh, my mic cut out. Maybe I am telling you more information than I should. <clears throat> um, but I need you to pray. Okay, so we're going to submit an offer on Monday. It's a very fair offer. It's a very good offer. Um, it, this is going to be a big project. This is going to be the biggest thing we've ever done. Um, this is an incredible opportunity for us to do ministry here in Tempe and to really have an impact um, on the city, on the university, and for Tempe to be a very um, important cog in this redemption church wheel. This is a big deal. Very, very big deal. And so I need you to pray. I need you to pray, pray, pray. Pray that if this is what God wants for us, that the owner would accept the offer. Pray specifically that if this is not what God wants us to do, that the owner would reject the offer and call us a bad name. That it would be very clear 
that this is not what God wants for us, okay? Uh, please pray that God would direct our steps through this process, okay? That's been our constant prayer. God, if this is what you want, make this next meeting go well, and this next meeting go well, and this next meeting go well. So far, everything has gone well. We've met with the city two or three times. The city is excited about having us there. They want us there. They're excited about what we can do, the impact we can have on the 85281 zip code. Um, this is a really, really good deal. So we will continue to give, give you more information as we get it. <clears throat> I have tons of vision for this thing, tons of ideas, but I know that it's not even scratching the surface for when we open it up to you all to have ideas and to have vision for this place. It is going to be phenomenal. Um, it's a little bit bigger than this room, but not much. We've made a commitment early on. We don't want big cavernous rooms. We want to keep this kind of intimacy and keep this kind of size. And so it's just all around a phenomenal opportunity um, to be right where we want to be, to have the kind of ministry and kingdom impact we want to have. So please pray. Pray that if God wants us to do it, it would happen. Pray about your involvement in it. Pray about the future of it and how we go about it and the doors that God opens for it. We're going to have to raise money. We're going to have to pay for this thing. We're going to have to do ministry. We are not, and I will just tell you this right now, we will not do what I've seen so many churches do, which is get into a building that the cost of which prohibits us from doing ministry. We will not do that. I have no interest in that. Okay, Cool buildings are tools and if it's not a tool you can use it's a bad tool okay so i don't want to rake leaves with a chainsaw here i want to be effective i want to get it done i, want, I just that was a good one i just made that up so um <clears throat> it's an opportunity whether or not it's the right one we'll see see if god has this for us so please pray okay let's pray together jesus from day one this thing has been about you. We moved from San Diego to the desert to preach the gospel, to live the gospel, to disciple people in the gospel. Lord, if this is the next step that you have for our church, this long and winding road that we've been on, if this is the last, the 14th and final location that you would have uh, this Tempe campus be in, Lord, I pray that you would make it abundantly clear to us. Lord, it's, it's not going to be easy it's going to take hard work. It's going to take money. It's going to take blessing. It's going to take provision. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take you showing up and doing something miraculous. But Lord, I know that if, if this is what you want for us, that, that you'll make it happen. So Lord, I, I pray that we would be wise, that we would be faithful, that we would be obedient, that we wouldn't force anything that we would be discerning about what you have for us, Lord. And if you close a door, that we would honor that that door is closed and not try to barge through it. I pray, Lord, that the people would see their place in this, that all of us would see the, the, the role we will play in the ongoing work of ministry here in Tempe. I'm very excited about this, Lord, but you know I have guarded my heart against it because it's something that could very easily uh, be disappointing if it doesn't happen, Lord, and I, and I don't want that to be the case. I want to be content with whatever you have for us, Lord. So make that clear to us. Help us to walk faithfully. And Lord, through this whole process, I pray that you'd be glorified and, and that ministry would get done. In Jesus' name, amen. James chapter 5, we have this week and one more week in the book of James. And then we'll be done. Then we'll do Palm Sunday, and then we'll do Easter. 
and I'm sure the guys have been telling you we're doing 8, 10, 12, or 8, 10, 11, 59, something like that, just to make you feel better about a 12 uh, here on, on Easter. It's going to be a busy day, back to back to back to back to back. See how that goes. Uh, James 5, what I want to do is I want to recap a little bit of last week, um, even though Ricardo did a phenomenal job and there's nothing I can say to add to it, I- I'm going to try anyway um, to, to give us some context for, for this week, for this section. <clears throat> and so uh, <clears throat> we're going to start in James 5, uh, 1 through 6, uh, because what, J- what James does in 1 through 6, and then again in 7 through 11, is, is talking to the same kind of large group of people in, in different sections, but kind of in front of each other, okay? So um, th- this is an important deal, that as, as this scroll, as this letter is being read in the midst of these churches, um, that the rich and the poor are sitting next to each other, and the rich hear the condemnation, the poor hear it, and they're going, yeah, you hear that rich guy? And then, then James turns to the poor and starts to condemn them, and the rich guy's going, yeah, poor guy, right? So this is happening in the same moment, right? As this is being read, this, this conviction on, on both ends. And so we, we need to deal with that as, as one section. So I, I want to kind of rehash a little bit of what last week was so that we get some context for this week. So James starts in chapter 5 verse 1 saying, come now you rich. Now, I, I, I told the people in Gilbert last week, which is where I was last week, um, I, I told them, I, I hate messages that start this way. It just, it feels like the Bible bangs on rich people over and over and over and over and over. And we're just going, okay, I get it. We're terrible, right? So um, the first thing we have to understand is when he says, come now you rich, and it doesn't get any better from there. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you, right? Not exactly encouraging. Thank you, James. So um, he, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, each and every one of us in this room should, when we hear, come now, you rich, go, is he talking about me? Is that me? Because everyone in here is rich. Everyone. Okay, so, so w- you, you should know these statistics by now, but if you make $50,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of earners in the world. Okay, $50,000. That's in our, in our culture, in our country. That's not a ton of money. It's decent, but it's not a ton of money. You're in the top 1% in the world. Some of you are going, well, I'm a barista and I'm not very good at it, so I don't make that much money. Okay, even if you are a crappy barista who gets no tips and you make $30,000 a year, okay, top 7% in the world. Top 7% in the world. You line up you and nine other people from the world, you're the richest, Okay. So when he says, come now, you're rich, we all have to at least, at least go, is this about me? Am I the kind of rich person that, that James is addressing here? And we have to at least, to be honest with ourselves, honest with the scriptures, to invite the potential for conviction, go, okay, this might be about me. Now, the Bible is not so black and white, not so binary as many of us are when we go, well, the categories are rich, poor. And even on top of that, we tend to layer onto it morality so that many, not all, some rich people, many rich people look down on the poor and go, well, me and my friends have worked really hard for our money. These poor people are lazy. They're gluttons. They waste their money. They don't work hard. They're not, they're not wise. They don't take advantage of all the opportunities they have. And so sometimes rich people look down on poor and go, I'm righteous, they're unrighteous. Now, the same thing happens the other way, and it happens a lot. 
where poor people look up at the rich people and go, man, you guys are oppressors. You guys are selfish. You ought to give us your money. You ought to share. You have a requirement to share the wealth with the rest of us. And we think as poor often think the rich just just have gotten their money by dishonest means and by gaming the system and, and that they owe the rest of us. So we see it, you know, we saw in London a couple of weeks ago where the protesters were literally attacked banks and wealthy institutions riding in spray paint on the walls the rich should give their money to the poor okay so there is this expectation and, and accusation from the poor that the rich are the bad guys and that they owe their money to the poor and oftentimes um, the rich do the opposite the poor are bad guys they're the lazy ones now um Clearly, the scriptures are not so binary, not so um, black and white about that. It's a little bit more nuanced. And if we can understand that this is all kind of on a continuum of rich to poor, righteous to unrighteous, we get kind of four broad categories from the scriptures. We get that there is a righteous poor and a righteous rich, right? So righteous poor people who work hard, are content with the life that they have. They're generous. They care for their family. They care for their church. They care for their God. They spend their money wisely. They work very hard at their job. They have high integrity. They just don't have jobs that are good paying jobs. Maybe they aren't blessed with the type of skills that are rewarded with great amounts of money in our culture. But, but they're not complaining about it. They're not whining about it. They're not walking around with their hands out expecting people to give them stuff. They work hard. They take care of their jobs. They take care of their families. They're generous with their money, and they're content. Righteous poor. There's righteous rich, people who work hard, that they were gifted with opportunity that maybe some other people weren't gifted with. They were gifted with skills. They just know how to make money. Maybe they're just really skilled business people, or they've been fortunate, and God has blessed them in certain deals that went good that could have gone bad. Maybe they've been gifted athletically and they've worked hard on top of their gifting and they're paid lots of money because they are blessed with some skill or ability. But they work hard. They don't take it for granted. They're generous with their money. They don't oppress people with it. They don't leverage it for their own good only. Okay, they're, they're righteous rich people. Okay, this, the scriptures are never talking about righteous rich people when they say weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That's never about righteous rich. It's about unrighteous rich. And the section we're going to do today is about unrighteous poor. Unrighteous poor people who squander their money, who are lazy, who don't take advantage of the opportunities given to them. They are sluggards. The Proverbs talks about the sluggard. It says that they are so lazy and they make excuses for not being able to work like there's a lion in the streets. I can't go outside of my house. Ridiculous. It says the sluggard puts his spoon in the bowl but it's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth and just falls asleep, Right? Just a sluggard, a lazy person, a fool, squanders his money, unrighteous, poor. They're poor because of their own fault and decisions. Some of them. They're also unrighteous rich. People who have gotten their money through dishonest gain, have leveraged their money to oppress people who don't have power, who have leveraged their money for their own good and not for anybody else's good. They're stingy with it. They keep it. They blow it on luxuries, right? They, as we talked about last week, they, they use it to, uh, to, to hurt other people. They withhold wages and, and hurt those people. So we, it's not so clear as rich, poor, bad, good, as, as much as there, there are righteous, rich, righteous, poor, and unrighteous, rich, and unrighteous, poor. And I think, I think, I hope we all get that in, you know, when, when we have a moment of sanity, but we oftentimes want to flinch towards, well, those people are bad. 
right? And we make blanket statements and blanket judgments relative to our own position, and that's foolish, okay? So what James says to these unrighteous rich in verses one through six, I want to run through quickly. He says, weep and howl. He says, verse two, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. That is such a great line. The James goes, you, you, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You are preparing yourself for slaughter. In this moment, even though, and I, and I just love this, that even though James is supposed to be the practical one, it's all about the tongue and wisdom and all these practical applications, he continually, over and over and over and over and over, comes back to the heart. He goes, hey, you, you rich people, you have, you have oppressed your laborers, you have held back the, the wages of your laborers that they deserve, and, and because of that, some of them have died. Some of them have died. You're talking about laborers who would live literally day to day to day to day to day. That's poor people. But my guess is none of you in this room are going, man, am I going to be able to eat tomorrow? Some of you might be thinking, what am I going to eat tomorrow? Some of you are already thinking, what are you going to eat today for lunch? Give me the rest of this sermon before you start thinking through that stuff. But, But none of you, my guess, none of you, or very, 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 very few of you are going, man, am I going to be able to eat tomorrow? Am I going to have the money to be able to buy food for my family tomorrow? Very few of you are asking that question. Okay. These people were. And when their bosses withheld their wages, the men would come home at the end of the day and go, honey, I, he didn't pay me again. And the wife's going, well, we got no food. What are we going to do to eat? He goes, well, we just got to pray that he'll pay me tomorrow. And the kids haven't eaten in a couple days. I mean, they, they're literally killing these laborers. Now, this is, this is one application for, for what James calls the fattening of their hearts in the time of slaughter. This is the application for this day. There are many applications. This one was specific for them. What, what all of this reminds me of is what is probably the most oft misquoted verse in the entire Bible, right? 1 Timothy 6.10. We often misquote it as money is the root of all evil. Evil, not evil. Evil. Bible doesn't say that. I, maybe, I think Benjamin Franklin maybe have said that, but the Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, the love of money or the desire for money is at the root of all kinds of different evils, all kinds of things. So he says, listen, when our hearts are inclined, when they are desirous of, when it loves, meaning finds its comfort, security, importance, value, satisfaction in money and in the things money can buy you, then that's going to lead to all kinds of different evils. For them, it led to wealthy landowners oppressing their laborers by withholding their wages. For us, it leads to a bunch of different things, right? So I I see three implications of this. When, When our hearts are inclined towards and our desire and our love is greatest for money and the security, the comfort that money can bring us. Now, Here's what I think. I think that if we went around the room and said, okay, is, is money your greatest desire and love? Do you love money more than anything? Nobody's going to go, yep, that's me. Love me some money, right? 
Nobody's going to say that. None of us are going to be so honest to say it. So here's what I do. Maybe you haven't even said that to yourself. Maybe you haven't even been honest with yourself. So, so what I see is a couple implications that might lead us to go, huh, I wonder if, right? So when we desire money, when we've fallen into 1 Timothy 6.10, we do three things. One, um, we gain or keep wealth through injustice. Okay, so for them, it was um, withholding the wages of the laborers. For us, it may be tax evasion. It might be creating poor work conditions for our employees, substandard pay, shady deals, a bad or cheap product, cutting corners, laziness, neglecting our family, our church, and our God. Okay, so, so n- none of us would say, oh yeah, I love money the most. But have you in the last couple of months been really tempted or actually failed? Um, ha- have you been so tempted if you had a moment to kind of pull off a shady deal that was kind of morally gray, legally gray, but you knew it was going to net you money? Um, in the last couple of months, um, did you have an opportunity to cut a corner in your business um, that was going to save you like $1,000, which would make your profit go up, your profit margin go up. Tempted for that. Um, w- was there a moment in the last couple of months where you thought, well, maybe I can stay at work another hour, another two, another three, another four, get these deals done, make some extra money at the expense of your family who's been at home waiting for you? Maybe that's been a temptation for you. And, and if so, you, you may have a, a 1 Timothy 6.10 problem where you're going, uh, my desire is for, my love is for, my hope is for, therefore that trumps my ethics, it trumps my wisdom, it trumps my family, it trumps my church, it trumps my God. Start to make bad products, start to make a product worse, but keep the price the same so that your margin's better. Okay, so... Those are temptations that we have. That's number one. Number two, um, we live luxuriously while the poor suffer and die. Now, um, I said this last week, and, and I don't know how well it was received. It may make me look bad, but we'll just we'll go for it. Um, I grow weary of the commercials on television that make me want to feel guilty for being born in America and having money. I grow weary of them. I grow weary of commercials that show me um, poverty in Asia or Africa or South America. I grow weary of the end of it going, why can't you give more? Why wouldn't you give more? And it's, it's guilt-driven. It's emotionally driven. Let me, let me, let me say this. Um, you, if you are rich, you don't owe the poor anything. Do you know that? You, you who are rich don't owe the poor anything. And no amount of guilt, no amount of sad story, no amount of sob story will not change that. You don't owe the poor anything. But you owe God everything. And they are his children created in his, his image and likeness. And we who are meant to be believers, Christians, owing everything to God, ought to walk in line with the heart of God and care for God's creation. So you you don't owe the poor anything as if rich automatically owes poor. Rich does not owe poor anything. Rich owes God everything that they have. 
See, it's, it's, it's a finite, it's a, it's, a, it's a very small difference here. It's a very nuanced difference, but it's the difference between duty and religion. You owe those people something and worship. You owe God your life. God has given his life for you. And so you respond to the cross by walking in line with the heart of God. It's the difference between religion and worship. It may be a nuanced difference. It may look very similar at the end of the day, but it is radically different. So that's number two. Number three, we become blind when we fall to 1 Timothy 6.10. We become blind to our actual needs. Um, C.S. Lewis, you may have heard of him, says um, one of the great dangers of having a lot of money is that you can be quite satisfied with the kind of happiness money can give and never realize your need for God. So um, w- one of the great dangers of having money, he says, is, is this kind of blindness to the world around you. And it's especially dangerous because it is need that is the first step towards salvation. It's that moment that many of us have experienced where we look around and go, there's got to be something more here. There's got to be something better. There's got to be something greater. This existence, this day in, day out drudgery, the death, the genocide, this cannot be all that there is in the world. There's got to be something more. But see, what money does to us is it it promises us this kind of low-level happiness that meets some of our needs, that makes us kind of comfortable, that gives us a little bit of happiness and a little bit of joy and goes, this you can have. And it's just enough um, to blind us to the great needs, the great opportunity, the real joy, the real comfort, the real satisfaction that is offered us in the gospel. So what we do is we exchange what God offers for this kind of low-level crappiness that we've convinced ourselves is good enough. Blinded to our real needs by the promises that wealth can give us happiness. Okay, so that, that's, the, that's the rich people, right? The irony of this is that the rich people, these unrighteous rich, have the exact same problem as the unrighteous poor. It's the same problem. The unrighteous rich desire to gain and keep wealth that they have, and so they oppress, they sin, The unrighteous poor want more than they have. They're not content with what they have. They want more, and so they sin in their desire to have more money. In their hearts longing for more money, they are willing to set aside the same way the rich people did. They're willing to set aside certain moral issues, certain ethical, certain choices. They go, no, me having this this kind of level of of expectation, this this lifestyle that I want is most important, so I'll desire it. So the the poor, according to James, in verses 7 through 11, do a couple things as well. So he says in verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So I see three things in this section that, that James is, is kind of jamming up these unrighteous poor about in their desire for money. The first is they're impatient. They want what they want, and they want it now. They're going, I, I, I am unhappy 
with my, with my lifestyle. Un, this, this income is unacceptable. This, this standard of living is not what I want, and I'm not willing to be patient and to slowly grow and slowly grow because I, I want it now. I think this is 100% indicative of our culture and my generation. I, in fact, I just said to my wife the other day, I said, is it, is it ever weird to you that, that at our age, I'm 32 and she's 27, at, at our age, um, is it ever weird to you that um, we have essentially the same standard of living as your parents do, as my parents do? Like, it, when, when my parents were, were my age, they, di- they didn't have the standard of living they have today. They, they, they grew into that over time, patiently over time. I mean, I remember growing up, we, we grew up in, in uh, southeast Portland, which is not a great neighborhood. In fact, I've gone back since and gone, yeesh. Um, and, and we lived in this tiny little brick house that wasn't actually brick. It was fake brick. I didn't realize that until about two years ago. And uh, it was this tiny little house. And, and, and growing up, we, I mean, we, didn't, we weren't like poverty stricken or anything, but, we, you know, it was working class blue collar. And, 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 I, and I look back on those days rather fondly. I remember one year in particular, our Christmas tree was the discarded top of somebody else's Christmas tree. Some rich moron who had bought a 15-foot tree for his 12-foot ceilings and had to cut off three feet and discard it on the side of the road. My dad saw an opportunity and popped that sucker up. <clears throat> put it on a table in my house, I think to fool us into thinking it was a real tree, and, and, and that, that was our Christmas tree that year. I think it was the same year, I'm not totally sure, I think it was the same year that um, for Christmas we got uh, Sesame Street pillowcases for Christmas. That was our, that was our Christmas present, Sesame Street pillowcase, which in, at the time was awesome because it had Cookie Monster on it, and he was eating cookies and Big Bird and Snuffleupagus, and I remember them all. But I, but I look back and go, their lifestyle then was not my lifestyle now. Their lifestyle then was not their lifestyle now. Um, but we expect to start where our parents are now. I, I, I think we do irreparable harm to our children's souls when we give them a new car when they turn 16. I could be wrong on that. I've never done it. But I remember when I, when I turned 16, I, I still wasn't, didn't even have my license. That didn't happen until well into my 16th year. And the car that I got, well, first I had to drive my parents' station wagon for longer than any young man should have to. And then the first car I got was, was an 84 Honda Accord. Um, and and that was, if that wasn't bad enough, um, in order to open the back passenger door, you had to open the front passenger door first then open the back, and then you had to close the back before you could close the front. Otherwise, and this mistake happened always at the most inopportune moments, so we're pulling up to the movie theater like, hey, girls, right? The guy opens the wrong door first. He goes, <clears throat> people in New Mexico would call us to complain, and, 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 and all our cool is out the window. Um, but I, I'll tell you what, that made, me, that made me appreciate my next car so much more, and my next car, and my next car was actually a downgrade, but then the next one. And so um, it, if, if I ever get um, a new car, I, I am going to appreciate it. Okay, and so there's, there's something there. There's, there's a patience issue there. There's, there's some impatience that these people were dealing with. Second um, is that they were clearly complaining we see it in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Um, complaining like the rich owe me. I shouldn't have to deal with this. Why is my life like this? Complaining and grumbling, assuming that God doesn't have a purpose for it, that that's not God's plan for you, that God got something wrong, that you don't deserve this. You deserve better, and you've got to 
kind of straighten God out on that. And then lastly, blaming God outright. If God were truly good, if God were truly loving, if, if God was truly just, then um, there wouldn't be rich and poor. It would all be this kind of John Lennon-esque middle ground, and we would all just be sharing everything, and there'd be equality. So um, we get to verse 11 in this second section, and James says something that I think we all need to get. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord. That there is a purpose, that there is a reason that God has given much to some and little to others. That God has given to much to some for now and has given little to others for now. Some of you will live in poverty your whole life. Some of you will live in luxury your whole life. Most of you will do this. So there, there is a purpose. James says, we have seen the purpose. Now, in a very quick look through the scriptures this week, I found eight purposes why God would do this, why God would bring suffering, why God would at times bring luxury. I'm already a couple minutes past my time, so I'm just going to give you one. Spent too much time on that announcement. Got excited. James 5.8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I think that God gives us at times luxury and I think that God gives us at times poverty to remind us that this world is not what matters most, that this world is constantly changing, that he gives us luxury to say this is only a taste, a glimpse, a shadow, a whisper, a mention of the glory you will one day experience that he gives us want, that he gives us poverty, that he gives us pain, that he gives us suffering, to say, listen, don't put your hope in this world. Don't, don't for a minute, even though what we see and what we feel, it's the only tactile, it's the only thing we, we really experience, and so our, our, our want is to place our hope in the only thing that's, that's solid and seems real, that Jesus goes, listen, there's a future, there's a hope, there's more, I'm coming back. Don't get wrapped up in the 80 years you have here. Most of us are gonna live about 80 years here on this planet. If you're past that, nice work, you're living on borrowed time, okay? Most of us, most of us are gonna get about 80 years here compared to eternity beyond. So I, I think luxury, and I, think, I, I don't just think. The Bible teaches us. Go back and read Romans 8, 18 through 25. The Bible teaches us that this luxury, this poverty, this want, all of this ebb and flow is to go, hey, hey, this isn't what matters most. You got 80 years here to do some stuff, to learn some things, to respond to God, to prepare for eternity, but this is not it. Don't get sucked into the fact that this world is all that we have to offer. One of my, one of my friends and, and favorite pastors um, said this one time, and, and we'll end with this. I thought this was brilliant. He said, um, for those of us who are believers, um, this world is as bad as it will ever get. For, for those who are not believers, this world is as good as it will ever get. This is, this is fleeting. This is, this is a, a time to experience and to press into God and experience in its fullness, but it's not the end. It's not the end. It's not what matters most. It's not where you should invest your time, invest your heart, invest your future. It's not in this stuff. 
This is the time for us to press into God, to realize, to be able to take a step back and go, okay, this world exists for a purpose. It's God's world. He created it. He's going to redeem it. But the world as we know it today is not where our hearts should be invested. It should be invested in eternity, sharing that eternity with one another, sharing, living in, in, in anticipation of what God's going to do, and let the luxury be a glimpse of what it's going to be like. Let the pain and suffering be a reminder that this world is not where you should place your hope. Let's pray. Jesus, this whole story starts with you. The righteous rich who was in heaven, who had everything, every blessing, everything you could ever want, creator and sustainer of the universe, sitting at the right hand of the Father, worshiped day and night by all of the heavenly host, righteous rich in every possible way, and, let, and yet you gave it up. You walked away. You became poor but righteous poor. And you walk this earth as perfectly righteous poor, having nothing, often never having a roof over your head, being mocked and scorned, being rejected, having to, to, to entrust your life to the Father day by day for food, clothing, and shelter. And yet in your poverty, we're always righteous. In your poverty, you gave everything. It's an amazing picture of the gospel. It's an amazing picture of our money. That though you were rich, you gave it all up. And when you were poor, you gave even more. Lord, I pray that we would be able to walk in your footsteps. Those of us here who are rich, that we would be righteous rich. Thanking you for all that you've given us. Being generous with what you've given us for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of one another. Walking in line with your heart. Those of us who are poor, that we would be generous, that we would be content that we would follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.